This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge here with you for The Philosopher's Zone and the first program in our RN summer series of highlights from the past 12 months. A lot of philosophical writing strives for clarity. There are complex thoughts to be expressed, and the best way to do that is to use language that's as precise and unambiguous as possible. But what if the thing that you're exploring is the radical indeterminacy of meaning and the ways in which it's impossible to use language as a tool for pinning meaning down? Because what you're doing when you use language is just creating more and more meaning, more and more interpretive possibilities, more and more ambiguity. It'd be a bit weird to try to get that point across by appealing to those traditional philosophical values of clarity and precision. It'd be like me saying, here, let me explain to you clearly and unambiguously why it's impossible to speak clearly and unambiguously. This is the problem that confronts anyone wanting to get to grips with the work of Jacques Derrida, the Algerian-born French philosopher who died in 2004 at the age of 74. Derrida is famous, or perhaps notorious, for writing in a way that doesn't explain or describe the indeterminacy of meaning, it enacts it. His early works, texts such as Of Grammatology and Dissemination, which both appeared in the late 1960s, are incredibly difficult to find a way into because they're dense and layered and they're, they're full of riddles and obscure references and word games. And because Derrida has this maddening way of never quite landing a point, which, of course, is his whole point. So, what you need is an introduction, and if you're looking for a good introduction to Derrida's thought, I can recommend a book that offers far and away the most elegant and lucid exposition of Derrida's major themes than I can remember reading. It's titled An Event, perhaps. It's a biography of Jacques Derrida, and its author is Peter Salmon, an Australian writer currently living in London. Peter Salmon joins me now. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, Peter, there's a nice anecdote in your book where Derrida submits his undergraduate dissertation to be graded and it gets passed along to none other than Michel Foucault, who reads the dissertation and comes back and says, well, it's either an F or an A+. And right there, you have an anticipation of what will later become the broad philosophical consensus on Derrida and on his body of work. Among those who give Derrida an F, and there are plenty of them, what are the main objections? Derrida has had quite an effect throughout philosophy, film studies, queer studies, literature, and so forth. And for many people, that effect hasn't been great. I mean, Derrida came up with deconstruction, which is the taking apart of texts. Um, he did that to start with in philosophy, but he very quickly moved across all these different fields. And there are some very bad Derridians who do it badly, as there are for every philosopher. Um, and there is a feeling with, with Derrida that for those who don't like his work, that he is some sort of trickster or charlatan. Um, so the people who don't like him think that he is a complete relativist, that anything can be true, that the whole history of philosophy is a lie, um, according to Derrida. And his writing is very, very difficult, impenetrable sometimes. Occasionally he does go off on one where he uses far too many puns and, and deliberately writes difficult stuff. And this is treated with a great deal of suspicion by those who don't like him. And often those who don't like him don't read him. Well, let's talk about that notorious difficulty. I mean, he's a tough read, to, to put it mildly. How would you describe Derrida's style? And, and, and what's the point of that difficulty? Because there is a point, isn't there? There is, yeah. His style is very, very difficult. There's, there's no getting around that. Um, for Derrida, meaning could not be nailed down. 
anytime anyone who's listening has actually put their f- fingers in the air and done the quotation marks, they're basically doing Derrida. You know, Derrida takes all meaning and says, well, are you being ironic? Are you using this word in a certain way? Are you doing all these things? Now, having established that, that means any declarative sentence becomes suspect. So it's very hard for Derrida in his style and in his thinking to make simple declarative statements. Now, that can be incredibly annoying when you're trying to read him. And the other thing about that style is once he'd established it, he went with it. Um, Unlike someone like a Heidegger, for instance, I mean, Heidegger is very difficult to read, but Heidegger at the start of Being in Time says, you know, the question of the meaning of being has been forgotten. And you know that the book is going to spend its time trying to answer the question of the meaning of being. When Heidegger introduces a new word, he explains it at some length, at, at notorious length often. Derrida doesn't do that. He emerges fully formed. He says, this is what I've discovered, and now I'm going to write in that style. So for those coming to him for the first time, it is a bit of a sort of hermeneutic circle of trying to, to find a way in. And I, I myself, in writing the book, found it incredibly difficult to try and work out a way into Derrida. Well, we'll we'll get onto the substance of Derrida's work in a minute, but I'd like to just keep sort of circling around uh, a little bit longer. And I, the, the thing that really struck me reading your book was was how tricky it must be to write an intellectual biography about a thinker who is so resistant to being paraphrased or summarized or conceptualized. Was that a problem for you in writing the book? The the, the feeling that to explain Derrida's work is to misrepresent it, even as he might have put it, to, to do a certain violence to it. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there's a couple of answers to that. One one is just the practical part of it. And I wanted to explain him in a way that could be understandable, but without cutting corners. Now, obviously, I've had to cut some to an extent. But the the thing for me that was really important was to get back to Derrida as a philosopher. And I think I was was lucky in a sense that I'm not a Derridian. Um, I'm like anyone who studied philosophy anywhere past the 90s. You have Derrida in your toolkit. But I really wanted to go back and back and back and back and try and find the philosopher, try and find where he came from. Um, And for me, the breakthrough was looking at his relationship to phenomenology, which I'm sure we'll come to in a moment. I had one of those moments where I suddenly saw what he was trying to do was very different to the way people had said he was trying to do things. Um, We've really, in the English language in particular, come to him as a theorist of language, whereas he was actually doing philosophy and treating him as a philosopher, I felt was a tremendous help. And there are bits of Derrida where I'm sure a, an arch Derridian would say, no, you've, you've got it wrong there. But for me, I think basically I've, I managed to find a through line for him, which was incredibly difficult. Yeah. Well, one of the problems I found in, in talking with professional Derrida scholars is that they can't leave anything out. You know, If you want to do justice to Derrida, if you want to talk about a text like Of Grammatology, you almost have to just recite the text of, of grammatology because it's, it's the the crib, the, um, the 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 paraphrase, the commentary is already losing the sense of what Derrida wants to convey, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think of grammatology is a great example because I mean that's the great book, isn't it? I think that's the one that in you know, several hundred years they'll still be talking about as the kind of ur text of deconstruction and, Derri- and Derrida. And for me, I actually describe of grammatology in my book as bonkers. You know, it is in many ways a crazy book. You know, it is built out of a couple of essays. It is Derrida's 37 when he writes it, been struggling along, not getting any sort of publicity, having a few essays and so forth published. And basically he puts everything he knows into of grammatology. You know, every single thing that he's come up with goes into this book and often, you know, cleave together in, you know, in like a Frankenstein style. You know, it doesn't make sense. 
But I think if you approach the book in that way, and certainly I was never told to approach it in that way, um, it's been quite gratifying hearing people feeding back on the book saying, oh, if we do it like that, we, I think we're used to doing it with novels. You can have bits in novels that you don't quite understand, you get a bit of a feel for it, and you keep reading and enjoying the novel. And I think with of Grammatology, that's kind of the way to do it, to read through and let these ideas emerge. And having done so, then you can move on to the other texts or whatever. So there are, getting an entry point is very difficult. But once you're there, the ideas start to, to seep in. Well, the entry point into Derrida in your biography comes with uh, his relationship with phenomenology, as you, you mentioned just um, a few minutes ago. Let's talk a bit about that. I mean, what, why was phenomenology so important to Derrida and, and what did he do with it? Well, I think the first thing to say is phenomenology was very important for a whole generation of French thinkers um, and German thinkers um, and hasn't been such a, had, had such an impact you know, in the Anglosphere, as it were. Certainly when I learned Derrida, and, and I'm sure when many people learn Derrida at university, I'm sure it still happens, it tends to come through semiotics, so through language, through saussure, you know, the, the signifier and the signified don't have a relationship, that's, it's a conventional relationship, so we go down that track. Partly that is because by the time Derrida became well-known, he'd moved on to language, and partly it's because of, I think, an analytical and Anglo philosophy really is interested in language. Um, it's always funny when people accuse Derrida of, of coming in about language when analytic philosophy, Russell and, and Wittgenstein and so forth, are about language. But phenomenology was started, literally started, by Edmund Husserl, and he kind of made a bet. He said, okay, one of the great problems of philosophy is does the world exist? Now, let's just put that to one side, that you've got the idealists, you've got the realists, that battle will be played out forever and ever and ever. Let's forget about that. Let's bracket that. What we then need to decide is how we receive the world. When we look at a table, let's forget the disputes about whether the table exists or not. It's how it affects us, how we think of it, how, you know, or, or taste or, or sound, how it actually affects us as humans. And, and phenomenology is description. Describe it, describe it, describe it, describe it. Now, Derrida wrote for about 10 years on Husserl, and his take on it was there's a problem here. And it's not a problem that Derrida was exclusive in finding, but it was a problem that he found and related to the rest of philosophy. He said, okay, that's great. I'm looking at the table. I'm going to describe it. But what is this vantage point I'm standing at? You know, can you have that vantage point? You have to basically stand outside the system in order to have that vantage point. And this is what philosophy has done. It's taken truth as the vantage point, stood outside the system and looked at what's going on. Religion takes God as the vantage point. Now, Derrida said, with all of these, we can't prove them. We can have faith in God. We can have faith in truth. We can have faith in this originary point. We can't prove them. There's a lot of flux happening. And Husserl grappled with this. Husserl found it very difficult, you know, dealing with time, for instance. Time is a really difficult thing to deal with. But Derrida said, look at the whole of history of philosophy. We have this idea of, he called it the metaphysics of presence, that we have this truth, this certainty that's there somewhere, and we're just working towards it. And we kind of fake that we've already got it in order to describe things. It's not there. And when he took apart structuralism, he said, you have a structure, the structure is all relating to stuff. But the thing that guarantees that structure is outside of the structure. If it arrives in the structure, if God arrives tomorrow, religion ends. If justice arrives tomorrow, law ends. If truth arrives tomorrow, philosophy ends. So that's what he's doing with phenomenology. He's, he's saying, I agree with Husserl that we need to describe what's going on. But we can't say that there's a, this imaginary originary point. I actually want to get even closer to phenomenology in describing what's going on. I want to describe how it feels to be me at this moment. And treating Derrida as a philosopher, 
he always saw himself as a phenomenologist. And I think that's what he's doing. He's actually describing how we relate to the world. And of course, language plays into this, doesn't it? it, it language being another, another system outside of which philosophers tend to place themselves, or, or at least there's this, you know, this will to clarify, which is so characteristic of a lot of analytic philosophy. It carries certain assumptions about language, that, you know, the, the idea that language is a, a transparent medium, that if you use it with, with careful precision, it's going to provide a window onto certain fixed truths about the world. But for Derrida, the relationship between language and truth is very different. Uh, I think a lot more interesting. Can, can we talk about that? How would you describe that relationship between language and truth? That is one of the things, as you as you say, we see language as a transparent thing that we can we can try and force our way through it, and there's the meaning. And this is what philosophers have done throughout history. They've said, I'm, I'm really sorry that I have to put it in all these words, but we're going to try and get to the meaning. Derrida says that's not the case. You are generating meaning by doing these things. Um, in a sense, it's quite close to Wittgenstein's late, late Wittgenstein's theory of language, that to look at the meaning of a word, look at how it's used. So this is what Derrida is saying. He's saying, if you're looking for that meaning behind everything, it ain't there. We can't prove it. But philosophy, for instance, has decided it's going to find that meaning. And that's a problem with philosophy. You know, of grammatology is very good on this. It, it looks at pictographic language, where if you look at a pictographic language, you are very aware that there's a representation of the reality. We tend to see words written on a page as transparent, as though they don't exist, as though we can move through them. And in fact, words written on a page aren't that. They're also like pictographs. A, an invented series of concepts through which we grasp the world. And we, we all know this kind of naively and, and, and commonsensically, you know, my way of viewing the world is quite often different from a French way of viewing the world or a German way of viewing the world. We do that. And that's because of language and concepts. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. My guest this week is Peter Salmon. He's an Australian author living in London, and his latest book is an excellent new biography of the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Well, Derrida is often lumped in with the uh, postmodern relativists, quote unquote, who supposedly deny any possibility of any kind of truth and they're regularly accused of having precipitated a crisis of morality in the contemporary West. What do you make of this hue and cry against the evils of postmodernism and of Derrida's being situated as a sort of arch postmodernist, maybe the arch postmodernist? Yeah, I mean, there's this thing that's happening at the moment. And it's, it's, it's a little bit scary, actually. Foucault and Derrida, as I said at the start, are kind of being shackled together by the anti-woke brigade, they call themselves. Um, and they basically say that, you know, stuff like the, the Donald Trump, Kellyanne Conway alternative facts is the fault of Derrida. Um, that he came along and said there are no, no truths whatsoever. Now, Derrida was always incredibly careful not to say this. In fact, he wrote a lot about the fact that he wasn't a relativist. To say that we don't know if truth, big T truth in philosophy exists, is not to say that we don't use truth and to say that we can deconstruct truth is not to say that it doesn't exist. Um, to take an example, you know, I can call something a chair. I can call anything a chair. I can call a balloon a chair. But there's a certain truth test that I will carry out on that balloon to find out if it works as a chair. I can sit on it. If I sit on it, I can still, as I plunge to the ground, say, it's a chair. I promise it's a chair. But I'm not going to get a lot of coherence from that. I'm not going to get a lot of agreement on that. 
And that's what Derrida is saying. He said you can't just take a poem and just yell the word chair, 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 and that's a valid analysis of the poem. You still need to stick to the text. So his words have been completely taken and, and turned into this, this demonic thing that there is no truth and anything goes. Yeah. But this word deconstruction, it, it did become something of, of, of an albatross around his neck, didn't it? And I think sometimes for good reason, if, if, if deconstruction is so often caricatured as, as this activity of gleefully taking a wrecking ball to any sort of truth claim and then sort of posing triumphantly and taking a selfie over the ruins. I mean, that, that's not what, <laughs> not what Derrida was doing, but there have been Derridaeans, some of his fans and followers have been guilty of that sort of theoretical game playing, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was Jay Hillis Miller, and I apologise to him if it wasn't, who said something like, you know, you, you take a text and you look for the thread that's mucked up and then you pull on that thread and the whole thing falls to pieces, which I think is the caricatured version of what deconstruction does. It wasn't what Derrida does. Occasionally, when he got a bit snarky at his critics, he did it a bit. Um, but Derrida was very, very, very careful again and again to say, what I'm doing is a very close reading of these things looking for little problems in them, looking for words that are changing their meaning over the course of the thing. Because once he says a, a text can't be completely coherent, he's looking for the contradictions. He's not looking for the contradictions to go, Yabu sucks, I found some contradictions. He's going, okay, the word justice is used this way by Hegel, and then two paragraphs later it's used that way. They're different. People haven't picked up on this, but that's important. Yeah, and it's. I think it's also often missed that Derrida's readings of well, pretty well any philosophy you care to mention, but particularly Plato. I mean, Derrida is often seen as this arch anti-Platonist, but his reading is so scrupulous and respectful. I mean, he, he's the closest reader you could possibly want to have um, taking apart your work, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He saw reading as a form of hospitality, and he wrote a lot about hospitality. It's a, it's a taking of a text into your life. Derrida loved philosophy. He loved philosophy. He loved the philosophical idea of truth, because it kept generating philosophy. It kept making these, these incredibly interesting ways of looking at the world. And he does really want to get a very close reading. Now, when you get that close to a text, you start to see the problems with that text. But he's not inventing these problems. He's not just going, ah, please, you know, let's have a look at him. Oh, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to fire off at him. He's getting incredibly close to the text and taking it apart. Again, makes him difficult to read because he will focus on a paragraph. You know, his takedown of Foucault is, is taking one part of Foucault, which looks at Descartes and saying, you've just got this wrong. So, you know, as, as Derrida says at the start of the text, the book's 600 pages long, but I found this one paragraph where there's a problem and I'm going to analyze that. And, you know, he and Foucault fell out over it famously. But he said, I found a contradiction here and it puts your whole project, you know, in the air. Um, and that's what he would do. He would really focus deeply on a particular part of the philosopher's work and say, hang on, there's a problem here. I mean, with Husserl, he said, you know, whenever Husserl kind of panicked that his schemes wasn't working, weren't working out, Husserl would mention God. Husserl never wrote about religion. God wasn't of particular interest, but there'd be this sudden, oh, God will look after this. And philosophy's done that a lot, of course. So then Derrida would go, okay, let's look at the relationship of the word God in Husserl which no one had written about before, but that was where Derrida saw this little contradiction that revealed a lot about Husserl's panic at that moment. A lot of the criticism of Derrida's work involves not just philosophical disagreement, but a deeply rooted conviction that Derrida was actually a fraud. And you hint in your biography that Derrida himself suffered from a certain imposter syndrome. What was the nature of that self-doubt? Was it in part a philosophical position? Did it have to do something to do with his background, his upbringing? Can we speculate about that? He was born in Algeria in 1930, which was then 
a French colony. Um, he grew up speaking French. He was surrounded by an Arab population. And in a sense, he never really fitted in. Um, so he's French in Algeria. He's also quite dark-skinned, so he's often mistaken for an Arab. So the French mm-hmm. are suspicious of him. But then a major event happened when he was 13. He was also Jewish. And when he was 13, so 1943, under Vichy France, he was excluded from school, expelled. And this had a profound effect on him. Firstly, because until then, he hadn't really thought of himself as Jewish. So he's suddenly given this label that you are now Jewish. And that defines everything in your life. You now go to a Jewish school with Jewish teachers who have also been chucked out. This is who you are now. And this was profoundly shocking to him, this completely arbitrary nature of identity. He now is that. He then was allowed back in the school, which is also arbitrary. Again, now you're just normal again. You're, you're, you're not this special category. So throughout his life, he was very interested in identity. And Derrida was very attentive to the fact that everyone has these labels, that they move around. Their identity is kind of fixed, made up, imposed, and so forth. And for him, therefore, who you were was a disputed topic. And so him, as the great French philosopher of the deconstructionists, was a label and something that he really struggled with quite often. Well, he did say, didn't he, that you you never really have identity at all. You only have identification, which is a process, not a fixed state. Absolutely. It keeps changing. So it is this complete mishmash um, of things. And one of the ways he's criticised by the anti-work people is he does attack this idea that there is a fixed identity that we've all got um, to do with gender, to do with sexuality, to do with power, all of those things. He puts those under question. He says, no, that's invented. We're constantly inventing our identity all the time and having it opposed from the outside. And sometimes that's fine. Often that's not fine. What about Derrida's identity as a philosopher? Because he's routinely described as such and and celebrated and denounced in philosophical terms. But it makes me think about Derrida's nomination for an honorary degree at Cambridge in 1992 when a a throng of philosophers from all over the world wrote a protest letter to the Times and they, they claimed that Derrida's work does not meet the accepted standards of clarity and rigor. And I wonder if there's a sense in which they were onto something, and it, it makes certainly as much sense, if not more, to see Derrida as a literary figure rather than a philosophical one. Because Derrida himself was quite, um, well, he had a very skeptical view of the whole business of philosophy, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the marvelous things about Derrida is that he thought the literature told us truths about what it is to be human, he thought religion told us truths about what it is to be human. We actually, again, we do this in our normal life, don't we? We don't all sit down you know, with philosophy books. Some of us do it a bit too often, but we read books, we, we, we have conversations with friends that reveal truths about the world. Um, and Derrida is a very literary writer because he thinks that writing in a literary style can tell things that writing in a dry sort of style can't. He treats narratives as things that reveal truths about the world. I mean, the Bible and other religious texts, they've existed for a very long time, despite anyone saying there's no God, it's all, you know, fairy stories. They exist because they tell a truth about what it is to be alive. And Derrida was very open to that. Philosophy does that in one way. Religion does it another way. They bleed into each other. And he's not going to say religion is crap. Philosophy, you know, this is the truth. Let's do this. He doesn't do that. He always had a great love of James Joyce and um, Ulysses and and Finnegan's Wake were very important texts for him. Why did he identify so strongly with these works? And and what do these works maybe tell us about Derrida's work? Yeah. I mean, Joyce was huge for him. Um, Joyce for him was kind of the exemplar of 
the plurivocal. You know, he 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 said that philosophy struggled because it was trying to have a univocal. This word means this thing. That was what it was trying to do. Whether it's the word truth or freedom or so on, that's what philosophy was doing. Joyce is the opposite of that. Joyce in Finnegan's Wake is trying to say that every word is this completely created and constructed thing. It's you know he's he's putting together etymologies with words formed out of different languages. So there's this plurivocality to it that disrupts normal meaning, and that's exactly what Joyce was doing. So Derrida was very very open to that, and it, you know in his first work on Husserl, Joyce suddenly appears and starts to play with Husserl. And so with a work with like Glaff, which is in two columns, on one column you have Hegel and on the other column you have Jean Genet disrupting each other. And he was very interested in this way that literature disrupts philosophy and philosophy tries to pin down literature. That was a really interesting and important thing for him. Just finally, Derrida as a political philosopher, he was in Paris during the uprisings of May 1968. He did participate in the demonstrations, but he was hesitant to commit to any sort of political movement or strong political identification. Why was that the case? And and to what extent did he overcome this reticence later in his life? Well, I think there's personal and philosophical reasons, if we just separate them from a moment, which Derrida wouldn't particularly like us doing. I mean, the personal thing is what we talked about before with identity. You know, once you take on an identity, um, you're having to put aside a load of disputes, aren't you? And I think we we all do do this, don't we? If we join a political party or we join a movement or we go on a protest march or any of those sort of things, we're having to make compromises in our thinking. No political party can capture all of what we think about the world. And Derrida found that very, very uncomfortable. Um, philosophically, I mean, it does come down to very much that identity thing. And also comes down to one of the things about Derrida, and you, you mentioned on the program, that idea of violence. That as soon as you say a word, as soon as you define something, as soon as you try to nail down a concept, you are doing a sort of violence to it, that you are excluding all other possibilities. And where Derrida exists in his philosophical thinking is that moment before you decide. And interestingly, Alain Badiou, um, who is a very committed political philosopher, complimented Derrida by saying he was a brave man of peace. You know, we do need people who are at the barricades, tearing stuff down, shouting and making the compromise and just saying, this is wrong, I'm going here. Derrida was bravely a person who would keep analysing, keep analysing and keep analysing. And you do need those people. Now, later in life, he had a bit of an ethical turn. Um, this describes the ethical turn. He said it just comes out of his, his basic philosophy. Um, a lot of it to do with Levinas, the idea of the other, that we are constructed by our relationship to the other. Having recognised that, we then have an ethical obligation to the other, care for the other, to look after the other. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, he really became much more politically engaged, um, particularly in stuff like South Africa and so forth, where he put his body on the line, as it were, at least philosophically, by arguing that there was good and bad, right and wrong, and that we needed to support certain movements. So it was a difficult decision for him, and he grappled with it constantly. But he was not the sort of person who would go, yes, I think this and we're going with it, because that is antithetical to his thought. As we came right at the start, we said declarative sentences, whatever they are, even political ones, are suspect and suspicious. And he held that position throughout his life. On RN Summer, you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone with London-based author Peter Salmon. His latest book is An Event, Perhaps, a Biography of Jacques Derrida, and we'll put publication details on the website. That's The Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P Zone, and I hope you can join me again next week right here in The Philosopher's Zone. See you then. <laughs>